Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Catherine. Welcome to How We Live Now. I'm standing in my garden underneath the big ash tree that overhangs it and I'm listening to the wind ruffle the leaves. It's one of my favourite sounds. There's two ring-necked doves a little higher up. They're cooing away. On Saturday, they got chased out of the tree by a very angry squirrel who lives up there too. And I heard him scolding them it was very, very funny. Today, all is peaceful, but it is beginning to feel a little bit like autumn. It hasn't yet. Even last night, I had my dinner outside in the pitch dark. Such a strange thing to live through these profound changes in our weather systems. And of course, here in England, we don't feel the worst of it. Anyway... I'm back with a new season of How We Live Now. I had a nice little break over the summer when I really, really needed to take a bit of a rest. Not just to restore my energy, although that was very important. I'd done an awful lot of talking in the first half of the year promoting my new book, Enchantment, and I was beginning to feel... A little weary of social contact, as you know I do. But also, during that time, I'd really got so far from the habit of writing that I began to wonder if I could ever get back into it again. It's so easy in this world to put creativity aside, even for someone like me who's living whose career has writing at its centre. There's always an email that needs to be replied to or a meeting that needs to be had. Someone who wants to have a cup of tea and pick your brains about something. Somewhere to go, somewhere to be, someone to talk to. And the writing feels like the least substantial part of that. And I had this kind of big realisation at the beginning of summer that only I could fight to put writing at the centre of what I do. And that meant truly honouring it myself, truly believing it wasn't a silly, embarrassing thing that I do on my own and that everything else is proper work. It might surprise some of you to know that that attitude hits me too, and it does. We grow up with a vision of work that often involves salaries and regular hours and going to an office and career progression 
pay rises, promotions, limited holiday, very fixed hours. And most of all, that pay comes from hours put in. That's not how writing really works. Most writers for most of their career don't get paid anything like the value of their work in creative or cultural terms or the value of the hours they put in. And for me, it's completely disconnected. It's taken me a long time to integrate that, but I've been working really, really hard on it. And I think that's a good moment to mention that there's a little bit of a change happening in the podcast for this season at least, in that I'm still pausing a tiny bit and I'm sharing with you something that's already going on in my world elsewhere on the internet on my substack which is katherinemay.substack.com it's called The Clearing and one of the things I do on The Clearing is run a book club called The True Stories Book Club which is a way of talking about the best non-fiction books that are coming out and particularly non-fiction books that tell quite personal stories and so for this season I'm going to share with you the recordings of those True Stories book clubs. The interviews I do... Oh! Big crowd of doves have just flown over. That was really cool. I hope you heard the wing beat. That was lovely. Sorry, I will carry on. (laughs) I'm going to share with you the interviews that I do with the authors of the books in our book club. Now, over on Substack for paid subscribers you're able to attend these live, to attend the recordings, to submit questions, to talk to the author in the chat and to really be part of it. And if you want to join that, then you're really, really welcome. Please take a look at it. But it's also possible to watch those video recordings afterwards and to listen to the audio without any advertising. However, what's great about this podcast is it's free for everyone to listen to if you can tolerate a few ads, which I think we're all used to now. So I hope you really enjoy it. And I want to introduce to you my first guest this season, who is a fantastically poised and accomplished debut author called Erica Berry, talking about her book, Wolfish. Now, Wolfish is quite a hard book to describe, but it's absolutely wonderful. (laughs) It is a book about the reintroduction of wolves into the Midwest of America and the reactions to that and the survival and the progress of the wolves. It's also about the history and culture of our relationship with wolves and how we see them, about the way they enter our language in so many different ways, the way they enter our folklore, the way they enter our films and our books and our TV programmes, and how absolutely saturated our culture is in the image of the wolf. But there's a third element to this book which I think makes it really special. And that is Erica's own discussion of her experiences as a woman in the world being predated, feeling like prey, having to understand that there are metaphorical wolves out there as well as literal wolves. But also thinking about what a nuanced and complex relationship that is, about how we become predator sometimes as well as prey, and about how we often choose to fit into those roles rather than resist them. I don't think I'm really doing it justice in my description, but Erica does in our conversation, and I absolutely love speaking to her, and I hope you'll really enjoy it too. Do read the book. And do let me know what you think. I'll be back in a little while. Erica, welcome. It is so lovely to have you here. I'm thrilled that you agreed because it's such a wonderful book that we're talking about today. 
going to hold my copy up of Woolvish. And I, I think some people here will have a different cover. So I love, I love it when we get to talk about covers as well, because it's fascinating. Me too. <laughs> so I wondered if you'd like to start us off by reading a little bit from it, uh, giving us a taste of Woolvish. Thank you. Yes, I've just been flipping. This is my, the UK version, which um, I just adore this cover. So this is from the beginning of a chapter that's about the idea of truth. And sort of specifically the idea of crying wolf was what I was thinking about. There's a story my Gramps likes to tell about one of my early visits to his sheep farm. I must have been two or three, toddling. We're walking toward the barn and I am running ahead in grass already mowed to fuzz by the herd, probably chasing butterflies, those ones that appear each spring to surf the breeze like shreds of torn lavender tissue paper. I turn a corner, round a hill, and stop. I've seen something, made eye contact with it. Gramps, I say, breathless, running back to his ambling frame, his boots nearly my height. A wolf. There's an animal ahead, eyes glassy but alert, neck hooked in a metal snare trap. As an environmentalist, my Gramps believed in the conservation of wild spaces and their inhabitants, but here on the farm, he was a tender, and he reckoned those two aims with little angst. His responsibility for the sheep was love, but also business. His job was to keep the flock alive. On the ground, from a distance, the animal is my size, and for a second we watch each other. Her breath surely labored. Did she know she would die? Did I? It's not a wolf. Gramps knows that immediately. There are no known wolves in Oregon at this point in the early 1990s. My wolf is just a coyote. But I am a child and I know only stories and the wolf in my stories looms big. The wolf is the beast that gets the sheep and I love the lambs. I lean over the rose-colored bathtub and help bottle feed the ones whose mothers have, for whatever reason, turned away. What did I feel watching that predator? I would like to think I cried on instinct, aware I was witnessing a brink of death, but I'm not sure. There is a chance I may have felt like we had won, like this was the last threat, like we had saved the lambs. Or maybe, and this is worse to consider, I saw the animal I thought was wolf and I did not realize that we had won. Maybe I thought the animal was still a threat, so I ran to grab my grandfather's hand. Maybe I saw panic in the animal's eyes and mistook it for my own. Gramps does not have answers to tell me about what happened after I got him. When I asked recently, he waved it off, eyes floating elsewhere. He began to tell another story. So many of his stories are tall, stretched, sculpted. Does it go without saying I have no memory of the encounter with the trap? No memory of the creature I thought was wolf? No memory of what twitched inside me when, if, I rounded the corner alone and looked her in the eye. In French, the word loop means wolf, but in other contexts, it can also mean other things. An error in calculation, for example. Pluralized, it's the black velvet mask worn at a costume ball. Both definitions suggest one's first impression of a wolf is wrong or rather imperfect. The truth is not always what it seems. That is such a perfect introduction to the book. Thank you so much. (laughs) I mean, one of the things that struck me over and over again was the way that the language of wolves is absolutely knitted into not just our language, but so many other languages across the world. It it seems like it's a a sort of enduring obsession of of humans almost. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that was, I sort of thought like when you say wolf in America and England, people get this sort of big bad wolf sort of stereotype if they've been raised in a certain Western folkloric sort of biblical tradition. And I started trying to figure out like, when did that conflation of wolf with bad, scary things sort of start? And you go back in the language and in Prussian and Slavic and Iranian, like there are words for wolf that are the words for outlaw really, really a long time ago, you know, and this this idea that um, some of these metaphoric conflations that I had sort of thought were these kind of contemporary problems, you realize they're really sort of like deeply in a lot of um, certain linguistic traditions, not all of them, of course, and that became interesting. Yeah, and and that 
threat is so often entirely imaginary as, as your your clip that you just read there yeah. suggested that we project wolves onto things that are not wolves so often. And at the same time, we fail to see the dangerous things that are, are lurking around us all the time. Yeah, I became so interested in the idea of how often we define ourselves off of creating this other thing, like that's over there and that's what it's doing. So we must be this civilized, this um, more rational, I don't know, whatever it is, this, those projections go so deep with the wolf. And I think, you know, I started this project looking at wolves from a sort of environmental studies standpoint. And I was trying to understand some of the animosity toward wolves in my own family, which is sort of includes taxidermists and ranchers and also environmentalists. And just understanding that when people said wolf, there was this just like shadow wolf beneath it. It was sort of the tip of the iceberg was when people, you'd see a headline about a wolf. And beneath that iceberg was like just these deep feelings about what it meant to be in community, but also to have an other and to have, you know, these boundaries between what is safe and what is dangerous. And the things we are told to fear are so often, that's like a story sold to us. And I became very interested in sort of not just how do we grow out of our fears, which was often how I heard fear talked about, but how do we grow into them? And what what would investigating that idea of like inheriting fears, um, how might that help live with them? Mm. So before we get too deep into the book, I'd love to know a little bit more about your origins as a writer, because this is an astonishingly kind of poised and authoritative debut. Where did you begin as a writer? How did, how did this start? And, and at what point did you decide to write the book? Thank you. First, it means so much um, <laughs> to have it in your hands. I was a poet first. I think that was the the sort of attention to language and the specificity of that as a teenager. And, you know, I think I was reading things like Sylvia Plath's journals because I was like, I'm, you know, this poet, I'm interested in how she's putting voice to woman's experience. And it was then reading, say, journals that I was like, oh, it's really interesting when she's also writing about her own life and understanding it, but also sort of there's this porousness between looking at the self and looking at the world. And I became very interested in the idea that you know, I could look outward and I was curious and I was sort of doing journalism at the same time and was interested in having these interviews, but it was often in service of knowing myself. And I think, you know, if you'd have told me I'd have written a nonfiction book that would be on like the mythology shelf or the science shelf as a kid, it's on all of these different bookshelves, but I would have been very surprised because I just, I was so deep into stories and reading, writing fiction and poetry were really my love at the beginning. But then, you know, this project was sort of in the rock tumbler of my mind for about 10 years. And I think I just needed to really, it was like circling this wolf in many ways. And my first iteration was, I'm going to do this kind of cool reported project that's I'm going to solve all the problems of the American West that I've feel deeply in these own family tensions in my my own life. And I'm going to sort of write this book for, for the people who are fighting. And then it was like, well, I was, we'll talk more about this, but these things were happening in my personal life. And I realized I had to look at um, these things closer to me and that that was the lens through which I was sort of doing the journalism. I was like wearing these glasses of my own experience that I couldn't take off. And so this sort of genre of that, you know, your work is very much inspiring in of, of being able to like do this sort of weave where you're both being quite intimate about my own life. That that felt appealing to me. Um, I guess I was writing what I was trying to figure out at all points. That That's what helps to deliver the kind of symbolic heft of this book, you know, that it's it's very different to just explaining the folklore of the wolf and the kind of linguistic clout of the wolf. It It's uh, the, the use of your story that that really brings that to life. I would love to hear a little more about like some, you know, how you came to decide on those incidents. Because as I was reading about these different encounters with different men that you, that you delve into, I mean, I, I think any female reader in particular would find it impossible not to be conjuring all the, all the different encounters that they've had. And I mean, it, it's hard not to notice the commonality of all of our experiences there. But I wonder how you selected them because I suspect that all of us have got many, many, many of them to tell. Yeah, you know, I think um, <laughs> there's this book also follows the story of one wolf um, who left his home pack in Oregon. And the only reason we sort of follow this one wolf is that he was the first one, he was wearing a collar. And so scientists were able to track his locations through GPS and in a way, I think I see my stories in this 
as um, I just putting a collar on myself and tracking these little micro movements. And it's not that my story's been any, like there's nothing really superlative. As you say, these are quite quotidian, some of the experiences. And that does not mean they're not traumatic. They don't reshape your sort of experience of moving through the world, but they're so, the women's experiences and sort of exposure to predatory patriarchal behavior get so normalized. And early on, I had written a scene with someone that's not in this book. You know, as you say, there are many to pick from. And a, an advisor sort of said, well, this is really just, this is a pretty standard assault. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. But it's oh, like, I know. I just thought like it's those so two words together. Yeah. What does it possibly mean that we've standardized a certain uh, encounter so deeply that this cat would be not worthy of writing about because it's a standard assault? And so at a certain point, I thought like, actually, you know, there are some things that are that are harder to write about that are feel like worse things that happen that are not in this book. And some of that is because things that are in here are are sort of there is an everydayness to some of them. There are encounters that happen when we're riding buses, when we're walking down the street. And Mm. trying to capture that, you know, I had a sociology professor who said, we make this familiar strange. And I started thinking like, what would it be like to try to like create this granular texture in making the familiar experience of like, to me, what often felt like hauling around my sort of like adolescent as I was coming into womanhood, this body that I like didn't know how to have. I had sort of really enjoyed being this sort of like asexual tomboy child and I didn't know what to do with the fact that I was like desiring attention and also um, running into experiences where I felt very uncomfortable. And sometimes those were happening simultaneously. And like, I just didn't know what to do with any of that. And so trying to write, yeah, those moments. And I think I, I was, I went into this book thinking I'm going to write about real wolves and that's all I'm going to write about. And then very quickly, I got to graduate school and had this experience where I was grabbed on the sidewalk. I do write about this mm. um, by a man one night who I didn't know. And he grabbed me from behind and didn't let go. And another stranger intervened. But I I realized that the way I was moving through the world, like I'd previously been this sort of off-leash dog, just like running around, feeling very adventurous. And it was this turning point where I felt like I was suddenly like very skittish and I was moving through space in a different way. And that changed my relationship with my body, but also with nature and with new people and all of that. And I started thinking about Little Red Riding Hood. And I was like, I don't want to think about Little Red Riding Hood. It's the story that has trapped the wolf in a certain narrative. And it's also, I began to realize, has trapped a certain version of what it means to be a young woman going out, walking at night, going out alone. And I, I didn't like that narrative. I was, I was uncomfortable with it. But I started thinking, like, what were my Little Red Riding Hood moments? And how have they sort of changed the course that I'm charting? Yeah. It's funny because when I think about Little Red Riding Hood, the version that I know the best Mm -hmm. is the Roald Dahl version. Ah. I don't know if you know it, but I learned to recite it when I was 10 years old for a a brownie guide convention uh, because I have always been this rock and roll. It's been like a consistent thread that's run through my life and I can still recite it now. But in that version, uh, Little Red Riding Hood is the predator. And she she suddenly shoots the wolf without giving, you know, away a very exciting ending and turns him into a coat. And I, think, <laughs> I won't recite it now. I really want it. And also, I can't believe I haven't revisited this recently. I'm sure I read it. Oh, well, there you go. This yeah. is, but, but that, it's really interesting to compare those versions of Red Riding Hood because that's the truth that you're circling in this book, that we are both predator and prey and our our fear our very real fear of of what a, a, a you know a hungry wolf can do turns us into something much more dangerous than the wolf mm-hmm. and that cycle then kind of seems to repeat itself yeah and i there's something in this book about the inescapability of those cycles of of fear and of then violence that that we enact Mm-hmm. No, that's beautifully said. I mean, I do think I felt uncomfortable feeling like a prototypical victim in the narrative. And a lot of that was just thinking about, you know, that is about unpacking my sort of gender identity, unpacking my whiteness. Um, there's many layers of that. And I, at the same time, I was uncomfortable thinking of myself as predatory in that presence too. And of course, we're both. And I, thinking about the wolf in a way helped me understand like, some amount of fear towards this wild animal 
makes sense. And I can also feel some amount or like, you know, it's it's useful to not think of a wolf like a pet or a dog, I think, right? There's some like, we, we have to respect that. But also I can feel fear for this creature. And I feel like I was really thinking about that with humans and climate change. And like, I feel both afraid and also afraid for. And that is sort of that paradox was not always explored in some of these like black and white fear narratives. Um, and I think about like, you know, talking to a biologist who told me this story about um, he'd been following one wolf with a with a collar that was sort of this master, uh, big alpha wolf kind of um, in Yellowstone. The idea of the alpha wolf is challenged, I should say, with a footnote, but it was this big wolf. And he said um, one day he finds it, the collar shows that the wolf is dead and he goes and tracks it and finds it in the middle of a snowy field. And this wolf is lying there with a spattering of blood around him. Um, and he's like, what has happened here? We've got this dead wolf, a circle of blood. And he realizes the wolf has two holes in its side where an elk has just skewered it with its antlers and sort of spun it around and tossed yeah. it. And that was a phenomenal story because he said, like, what we don't realize is that the prey needs more credit. Like the prey can be really <laughs> um, fierce. And in that moment, like, yeah. who is the predator? Who is the prey? And even like thinking about stories like that in the natural world helped me sort of think about the ways that even when I've been had some of these encounters on the street, like, you know, it's not a clear, I had certain predatory privileges or certain experiences that that made me feel bad perhaps for the person, <laughs> even as I was very threatened by them. And I felt like that is a hard thing to write into because it's sort of a sense of uncertainty in my own voice. But I, I felt like that was important to share. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't until I was writing Wintering that I got curious about why we no longer have wolves. And I hadn't, I had not understood that we had eradicated them so very deliberately. You know, I'd assumed that they'd kind of, I don't know, gradually died off due to habitat change or I, I don't know. I, I suppose I hadn't thought about it that deeply. But I had not realised like the systematic way that our society and, and others have hunted down the wolf and, you know, the, the fact that we've definitely done the wolf more harm than it has ever done to us. And of course, as in, you know, as in America, there are now some people that are advocating very strongly for bringing wolves back into the environment. For anyone that hasn't geeked out about wolves to the extent that you and I have, can you outline the arguments for for bringing wolves back? Like, I think from, from a sort of standing point, you'd maybe think, well, why on earth would we do that? But there's actually some very good reasons that people are considering it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, this idea that the landscapes that we're both in have been shaped by the eradication of wolves was really interesting to me, like swamps in New England drained and you have reports of forests in Ireland being burned for this. And so this idea of sort of getting rid of the vermin was often the language, like it uh, justified all of the way that our world really looks on an environmental history level, but also social history, you, you know, eradication of indigenous people or, you know, expulsions, those narratives were so tied. And so I think to some degree, repopulation of wolves is related to this idea of not just going back to it. There's no sort of stable wilderness, um, but it is thinking about what does it mean to go back to sort of think about the ways that colonizing forces have really altered a certain balance in the ecosystem. And in America, especially out of Yellowstone, there's been many studies about how wolves they sort of change the ecologies of fear and this, these sort of beautiful terms that I, I sort of look at metaphorically too, but landscapes of fear where you have wolves affecting how elk are going to be feeding. Maybe they're, they're a bit more skittish, so they're eating fewer saplings. And then you have birds that are living in those saplings. And, you know, I, there's scientists are careful to say that some of these studies that happen in Yellowstone would not, it's too simplistic to say that like wolves are just going to save songbirds all over the world. But I do think they're, are a part, there's this keystone predator that their connections into all of these things. Now it's being tested out in really interesting ways. There's fewer cars hitting deer in Wisconsin because the deer are staying away from the roads where there are wolves. So there was a really interesting study out of Wisconsin that was trying to put sort of a number on here's how many like car accidents. Like we can, if we reintroduce wolves, will prevent car yeah. accidents because so many people hit hit deer. Um, and, you know, there's research about deer having this 
chronic wasting disease, it's called this illness where that can affect hunters. It can be a brain related thing. You don't really eat deer with this illness, but wolves will pick out the sick number of deer in a herd and like that might be positive. So there's sort of all this new research now about the ways that like we have not understood the myriad ways that predators in our ecosystem do sort of help maintain this balance. And, you know, an animal Mm. dying at the hands of a wolf is sometimes less cruel than dying because there's just not enough food because there's the herd is too big. You know, I thought a lot about this idea of like, what is the cruelty of losing an animal to a wolf to dying by a predator? Like wolves are not cruel when they kill. That's what they do. That's why the metaphor Mm. of humans as wolves falls flat for one of those reasons. And of course, like the other side of that is wolves do not understand that this is ranch and that is wilderness and they do predate and you have circumstances where wolves will sort of like learn that there's a sheep herd and continue to come back. But I've talked to a number of livestock producers in Oregon where I live and Montana where I have family and, you know, there's electric fences around their territories that um, really prevent wolves coming in. And there are ways that people Mm. have been living beside wolves. So I am on the side of like, this is not a thing we haven't done. This is for many thousands of years, people have lived beside wolves. I mean, one of the things that came to mind for me when I was reading your book was, I just wonder if, uh, if like agriculture is a bit incompatible with a world that has wolves in, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, as you say, it's a system that the wolves can't read. They can't see that this group of livestock belongs to this human. And it's like, you know, we've overlaid this patterning over the landscape and the wolves are still using it in a much more ancient way. But I I think we find it, like particularly at this point in history, more than any other time, I think we find it incredibly hard to understand that a predator that eats and kills other animals could be beneficial. Like we don't have the same relationship to cruelty as we used to, or to death, or to suffering. Like we we are so hypersensitive to those things happening in the animal kingdom. And yet, weirdly, we seem very mellow about it happening within human populations quite often. It's it just boils up all of these contradictions that that come from us and not the wolves. The wolves are behaving pretty consistently. They're they're being wolves. Mm-hmm. Well, and I yeah, <laughs> no, it's so that's beautifully said. I think like this. The putting the cost on everything, it's this competitive instinct where we have that we are supposed to make this amount of money from these cattle. And if the wolves are stealing it, they're like taking our money. But, you know, it reminds me of some ranchers I talked to who were saying, like, if wolves are on our in our pasture, that means that deer are in our pasture. And that means it's a good it's like the deer are happy. Mm. And actually, they were saying we want to raise cattle in a place where wolves want to be because that shows us it's a healthy ecosystem. And so they've hired a tracker who kind of is with the ranch and he sort of, okay, we're getting some predatory behavior. Let's have the wolves, you know, let's have the cows cluster together in a different way and keep each other safe, right? Like there's there's different patterns of agriculture and that's part of it is that that's just sort of gone. Mother cows around wolves will learn to take care of their young in a different way and to teach fear and to teach protection. And that was also quite poignant for me in animal and human contexts. Like the threats are not necessarily gone, but when we're living around them and acknowledging certain things, we like learn how to adapt and live beside potentially in different ways. And, you know, many of the animals, livestock that are being bred right now are not bred to be smart. They're bred to be a certain amount of fat in the market and, you know, capital, they're these docile. And how could we sort of, I think the wolf can maybe push our food system in interesting ways and much less our relationship between, you know, my property and their property. And like, that's all, Mm -hmm. that all is a bit rusty and, you know, a very colonial mindset. Um, So as you say, how can the wolf help us think about interconnection more broadly? Because the wolf does kind of walk in and out of many of our different systems. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about the link between wolves and colonialism or the parallels that you draw, because that for me was a, a really fascinating part of the story. I mean, I, you know, I think particularly understanding that indigenous communities have often got a very different picture of what a wolf is, but also, you know, the, this this kind of way that we have, again, you know, be, been the symbolic wolves in, in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really didn't really understand that there was a link until I was researching the history of my home state of Oregon. And I found that the first meetings, uh, the first sort of government meetings were about 
putting a tax uh, bounty on predators to kill wolves, essentially. And it was going to say, here's what we'll pay if someone brings in this wolf pelt. So, okay, my state was founded on the expulsion of wolves. I got, I, that was shocking to me. But then researching a little bit more and understanding that the sort of next round of laws passed were black exclusion laws, they're called, which was really like only white people are allowed in this state. And understanding that it would have been the same people voting, like no wolves, no people of color, no Asian Americans. Um, and that was really, uh, I just began to see the ways that those conflations in the language go back so far and were really embedded absolutely inextricably in the founding of nationhoods and statehoods. Mm-hmm. And, you know, early national parks in the States, you had these game wardens who were chasing out not only wolves, but the Blackfeet people who were hunting um, as well. And it was just this real effort to control who was allowed to hunt, who was allowed to kill, who was allowed to profit off of the land, right? And I think in so many of these stories, like There's research onto how wolves maybe helped humans were looking to wolves and learning how to hunt in certain ways from them. Like the idea that we're these really close, you know, there's so many similarities between wolf packs and human communities, Um, the ways that they care for young, you know, you have sort of auntie figures, you have the stepchildren, right? Foster families, like all of these Mm -hmm. groupings are actually terms that biologists will use to talk about wolf packs and the understanding that humans have known that for thousands of years and been watching wolves and learning from them at the same time that a sort of Western colonial mindset was like, we have to differentiate. This is a threat to us, you know, and trying to figure out the seed of like, why was the wolf so threatening? Why did we, we, you know, a a white settler perspective, why so much torture of this creature that you really don't necessarily see with like even mountain lions, cougars, some of these other big predators. Um, There's something very specific about the wolf. Mm. And I, I do think part of that is this sort of, this is my more more theory, but the the dog likeness of it, but it's foreign, right? right? It doesn't respond to us, and this idea that like it's not um, man's best friend, it's it doesn't really care about us. The wolf is living its own life, and that is hard mm. for for this sort of mindset of everything has to be in service of me, you know, <laughs> Western domination yeah, yeah, of nature yeah. feeling, yeah. That struck me a lot as well, this this kind of idea that a wolf is a a sort of wrong dog almost. Um, and we like dogs as a human population. And therefore, this kind of slight deviance or divergence is incredibly uncomfortable to us. And like I'm quite a recent dog owner. <laughs> I never I never thought I'd be a dog person. And I rescued a dog a couple of years ago. And it's uh, it's just been fascinating living with this creature who is on one hand so kind of loving and obedient towards us, but on the other hand has this nature that kind of comes out in her sometimes. And that's particularly when she's approached by other dogs. She she will suddenly snarl and it's really, really shocking. And in particular, if I'm with her and we're approached by a lone man, she will, her hackles will go up. She'll start growling. She, you know, it's so interesting that she identifies the same threats that I identify. Mm-hmm. But first of all, I thought she was just kind of a mongrel. But as I, I read about her, she's from Greece. Okay. And she's actually quite a specific breed called a Greek shepherd. And she's bred to defend the pack against wolves. That's what her kind of genetic role is. And so she is incredibly hostile to other dogs because that is exactly what she's been like put on this earth to do. And that that sort of really changed the way I saw her because now when we're walking through the woods and she'll suddenly pause and, and like look around and growl and I'll be like, Fraggle, there's, there's no wolves here, you know? But she's she's on the alert for wolves all the time. It's like, that yeah. hypervigilance. I'm curious if being around a dog like that has made you feel like an animal in different ways. Like I've thought a lot about what looking mm. at a wolf, like part of it is learning to see this other animal, but part of it is seeing myself as an animal and understanding the sort of codes yeah, I'm just curious how that's affected. Do you feel like we're just these two animals ever? Yeah, and I that struck me so early on when I got her because when we rescued her, uh, she she'd been like very badly injured and then turned out into the street, so she had a very badly broken leg, and we shipped her right over to the UK. She was like four months old, and yeah, it was a it was a big to do. And when I could finally take her for a walk in the woods and and take her off the lead, yeah. 
I had this, it, this, there was snow on the ground all in between the trees. And I just had this extraordinary moment of walking with my dog in the woods and both, and, and the freedom that she clearly felt. And she was like snuffling through all the leaves and digging and, and you know, really looking around. And there was, I don't know, I don't want to overstate it, but it felt like there was something very ancient there of like a human and a dog walking together. And it was it was this really sort of transcendent moment for me. Yeah, there was there was something there was something that we understood about each other and something that she like opened up for me in that territory when I was there with her as opposed to when I was there alone. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've thought about that too, just being around some small children recently. I don't have children, but my friends mm. and like the ways that there's sort of an attention to sensory um, detail that I would pass over. And similarly, like yeah. being around animals and these, I spent a couple of weeks observing wolves and just watching the ways that like what a bird means that is all sort of re-altering my experience of being a, a body in the world in a way that's really beautiful. And I was just on a panel about like, why write about animals right now in our sort of time of extinction? Like what can it gain us by writing about animals? And I think part of it is like, it's an exercise to try to think about how do I describe the world as a wolf is seeing it? Like a wolf leaves these sort of olfactory breadcrumbs as it walks, right? And so a wolf is going to sort of know who else was walking there. And that's just this like layer of beautiful kind of what would seem like telepathy or magic to me. But knowing mm. that has changed the way that I walk through the woods because I'm starting to imagine, and you know, like who was here and walking with a tracker I had a similar experience, like he was able to see things that I wasn't. And I think that like granularity of experience feels so, yeah, there's something so enlivening about that, that we can get from thinking with wolves or dogs. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I always think about the sort of archaeological research that suggests that ancient hunters probably tried to enter the minds of their prey you know, we, we can see it in cave paintings, we can see it in artifacts that seem to have turned people into deer, for example. And there, it seems that, you know, whereas now we would only hunt as like an act of domination in general, you know, it's, it's in Western societies, it's done for fun and for sport and, and as this kind of expression of like macho-ness um, in, in quite a grim way. Mm-hmm the ancient roots of hunting appeared to be much more about respecting the animal that we hunted, but also like to the extent that we became it, like inhabiting it. And this sort of merging between the the self and the prey that kind of suggests this sort of absoluteness of the ecology, I guess, this, this complete intertwining of the ecology. And there's something that feels really interesting. Well, and if you look back, research like shepherd societies were more the wolf was bad, but hunter societies were really looking to the wolf. And I just think that way, the idea that what a wolf means depends on sort of the capitalist um, or the agricultural system that you're in is so interesting. And like, I was really struck by some stories from Northeastern Japan hundreds of years ago, where if you're growing rice, the wolf is the one scaring the deer. So the wolf is someone to be thanked and there's these shrines to wolves and like the wolf becomes a sort of shepherd in that category. And just this idea that the wolf could be this sort of sacred tender in the way that in a, if I'm growing up near a sheep farm, the wolf is the problem. The wolf is the right, but that's not innate. That's a story that we tell and recognizing those stories, it becomes useful. And also I think what you were mm. saying earlier about the dog is familiar, but the wolf is sort of this gone rogue version. I think that goes back to the conflations of wolves and women, which go back in ancient Greek texts and Anne Carson writes about it, this Mm. idea of sort of, I want to live beside this thing, but I want to live beside it. And this is a sort of, you know, male voice in a way that is very domesticated and clear and you are listening to me. And when that sort of version of womanhood um, acts out, that becomes a threat in the way that the wolf being wild is a threat to that. And so those, mm. those, those conflations, they're, they're just there. They're yeah. there through hundreds of years. But, but at the same time, you know, there are, I mean, I think Native American cultures often see the wolf as a symbol of humility. Absolutely. And of, of kind of good motherhood. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of gentle attributes, female attributes, I think, or feminine attributes that come with the wolf in some societies. There totally are. And I, that idea of this sort of like mother wolf that can be really deeply 
intensely fierce. And I sort of look at it not just as mother, like a biological mother, but with wolf packs, especially like everyone mm. is will play the mother. You know, other members of the pack will regurgitate food for the young. Like the caretaking is very sort of loosely horizontal in ways that were really inspiring to think about um, what can we learn from how wolves take care of one another, right? There's a lot there. Mm. Well, I, I just begin to wonder if it isn't the, the fact that they show their vulnerability to us so much that makes us so angry with them. You know, they're not the perfect predator in that sense. They're not the, I don't know, killing machine, even if we like to portray them as that sometimes in, in sort of, you know, in this kind of post-wolf society that we live in where we can imagine a wolf as something other than, than what it is. I mean, cultures that are intimate with wolves know that they're deeply vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And you know, most of their hunts are not successful. And, you know, this idea mm. of the lone wolf that goes out alone, we it's so often talked about as just this big, scary threat. And yet the time in the wolf's life where the wolf goes out alone is the most vulnerable, right? It's There's territorial disputes. There's It's harder to hunt when you can't be sort of doing this beautiful choreography, watching wolves hunt from up above. It's sort of extraordinary. Often you have the matriarch leading the pack. You can't do that if you're alone. You're eating roadkill, right? It's hard time in the life. And the idea that a wolf will go it alone, not as some sort of exercise and I just am this kind of macho figure, but they're looking for partnership. They're looking for another pack. They're looking for more land. And that was really instructive to me too. Like um, Mm. sometimes the vulnerability and the ferocity are not mutually exclusive. They're often the same, right? And how do we think about when, when I think about a lone wolf shooter headline or something, that's the wrong metaphor. But how can what I now know about lone wolves, the animal, the non-human animal help me think about maybe the human version of that. Um, Yeah. Talk to me about wolves and the uncanny, because I think that's how we so often think about them now. You know, they crop up in in horror films and in in ghost stories. You know, their, their sound is enduringly eerie to us. You know, there seems to be like this sort of residual memory of what it's like to hear the wolves howling. Talk to me a little bit about that link. Yeah, there is something that sort of um, a rancher who I was talking to was like, we, we always hear wolves and we never see them. And she was sort of saying that's part of the, I think she sort of, she compared it sort of to like having a crush, but there's nothing ever happens. And so you actually think more about that person because they're never really there when you're a teenager or something. And that idea that in the absence, wolves don't want particularly to hang around with us, right? They do their own thing and that distance creates, again, a sense of illegibility that I think is quite threatening. And it was really interesting sort of looking at some of these werewolf stories. I began to think about what there's many sort of like legends of people becoming wolves. And what does that mean? What what sort of access to a fierceness that we are not allowed as humans um, does it mean to mm. want to be? I've started having dreams at a certain point with this book where I was like, I had wolf parts or I was sort of in that zone liminally between a wolf and a human and trying to think about like that fantasy of becoming this wolf. That also feels very primal in a way to me. And I don't, yeah. I, I don't know what that, yeah. what that is. But there, there are these just so many legacies of people and women having this sort of slippages between becoming a wolf. Mm-hmm. I'm, now I'm like grasping for the particular of the story, <laughs> but it is a for our sort of spooky season that we're in. I do feel like it's sort of this this wolf season. Yeah, it is. It's wolf season, and there is this this enduring sense of liminality that that trails the wolf. And, I, and as you were speaking, I was thinking about how often I'd read wolves as being described as like dissolving into the forest as if they're non-corporeal, you know, they're, they're like ghosts. There's a merging of the the wolf and the wild and they're kind of inseparable. Yeah. It, it represents a, a pole of wildness that is, is almost the ultimate. Well, and this, so this phrase that sort of becomes one of the backbones, sort of conceptual backbones of the book, entre chien et loup, between a dog and a wolf. Yes, and I love that. Got this roots in, <laughs> in Latin and French, but this idea that when you're walking down a path at sunset, you can't tell maybe if the creature before you is a dog or a wolf. And that idea of not being able to parse if you're sort of right, is your heart right to pound a little bit more? And part of that mm. feeling is maybe fear, anxiety of the unknown, but with the unknown comes excitement too, right? And this sort of intrigue. And I think the inseparability of those feelings and it wasn't until... So I started thinking about that idea, like how am I 
whether it's me walking in the woods and hearing something or me on the sidewalk and hearing footsteps behind me. And I'm thinking, am I right to be really like scared right now? And Mm -hmm. that evaluating of the fear is such an innate thing. And I I was researching how wolves live with fear in their own lives. And, you know, wolf pups are born very fearful. But what does that fear do? It means they hear something under a tree, they go to investigate. And so the fear is always tied to curiosity, to inquiry, to investigation. And I think in my life, I was thinking sometimes the fear is like closing a door. Like my world got smaller when I was most kind of anxious. But I started thinking about the ways that fear could like open doors to and mean, well, let me go look at this more. Like fear is often a lack of knowledge. And so again, the thing I could learn from the wolf was like sometimes feeling that fear means just like go look at it a little bit more. Of course, you know, not on a dark sidewalk, but um, there is a there is a processing <laughs> that the maybe no, I don't know. can be intriguing, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I you know. We talk a lot about reclaiming nighttime spaces and lonely spaces, but uh, I just wonder if sometimes that's naive, you know, the idea that this can somehow be conquered and that we can dispel all the darkness. I I don't know if that will ever happen, however hard we fight the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I do think that was... <sighs> It's so bleak, but I I was really raised in this sort of like girl power. Feminism is here. Everything's happened. You're fine. Like you're safe. And that was many sort of my intersecting privileges and where I was growing up. But it was the first realization that that just wasn't true and that I wanted to toss out Little Red Riding Hood entirely. But some amount of what the mother says to the daughter in the sort of original Grimm's version of that is like, go to grandmother's house. There is a forest. There are wolves and go. And like that idea of like, go out, even though there's something scary. And I think, you know, I went into this book thinking like, I'm writing this book because I'm trying to evaluate when am I right to feel fear? What am I right to fear? Like, how do I live with these fears? I was trying to sort of like collate them and realizing at the end, like, there's no way that I can predict what is happening or when something scary is going to be. So it's like, how do we walk beside that sense of uncertainty and mortality and fear and frustration? And of course, I want to make the world sort of, you know, I'm I'm very pleased when men who've read this book say, a rancher wrote to me and he said, "Um, I realized that I was a wolf in my younger days. And I was so surprised because he'd lost more livestock to wolves than anyone in the state of Oregon. You know, I thought he'd react to this book on a sort of wolf cow level. And instead he reacted on a, I see myself in a certain version of male wolfhood, a big bad wolf, and I'm reckoning with it. And he was having these conversations with his wife. And I'm like, that's really positive. And also, that's incredible. you know, these things are still going to be there. But equally, like, I wonder how many women have ever looked back at themselves and thought I was a wolf. That's really um, interesting. I find it unrelatable to be able to look back and think that. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And as I was reading, I was thinking, you know, it, it was chiming with so much in the news. You know, I was like last week, I was... I couldn't help but draw parallels between your book and and the revelations about Russell Brand and this 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 man who to me it seems like he went out of his way to present himself as wolvish and we kind of liked it until we didn't honestly the movie Wolf with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes. It's about the publishing yeah. industry. It's really wild. And I was just researching, anyway, I was Googling Jack Nicholson for something related to that. And I found a profile <laughs> of him from 1994. And it was saying, Wolfish is in. And Jack Nichol- it, like the word wolfish was tied to him. And this idea that this fierceness, it's been sort of defanged by feminism, but now women actually really like this fierce, mean wolf guy. And we're back mm. to that. And I was just thinking about the ways that like wolf and desirability politics have like gone in and out. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're yeah. saying about brand. And like, you know, that's yeah. that's a thing to interrogate as as women, as well as, you know, any identity sort of how are these, what are these figures and archetypes? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that that kind of sense that that on one hand, you know, there's the wolf as predator, as sexual predator, but there's also that meeting of female desire, which is much more ambiguous than than we like to think it is, and which often enjoys that that vision of the the sort of predatory male to an extent. You know, if if you look at research into sexual fantasies, it's just such a common 
fantasy, but that not being the same as wanting it to actually happen. And how confused we feel about that, like how difficult we find it to really interrogate that and express that. We know when the line has been crossed, Mm -hmm. when it happens, but I think we find it quite hard to truly articulate where that line is and certainly not consistently across the whole of society either. Mm -hmm. Well, and it makes me think about Angela Carter's wolf stories, which I was, you know, looking at some of those early drafts. And I think so often, you know, I was raised very much to like know when to say no. We were taught no in a sort of sexual consent way, but not yes. It actually, the idea of what to say yes to was really never explored. And that's very, that's a lot harder. And I think as we think about like, not just, I don't want to be in a place so much of the way girls are raised uh, in certain cultures, I think my own, is like you are the sort of gatekeeper and you are just like pushing, saying no to things. And that is such a lousy way, I thought, to be a young woman, right? Where you're just sort of imagining yourself constantly under siege and just in that process. And I'd much rather be sort of like saying yes and having this eagerness and curiosity and just sort of knowing what I want and yeah, what what new language do we have for that? I think again, there's the, the Roald Dahl's example is a beautiful one because there are these fairy tales that sort of <laughs> mine this scaffolding that's very familiar yeah. and yet build something much more liberating. I mean, weird that that comes from Roald Dahl, but sure, it is. <laughs> if it's there are there are other feminist versions. <laughs> yeah, let's go back to Angela Carter quickly. You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I it is. It's such a I was I'm just trying to think of the name of Billie Eilish, who recently was talking about how she realized that porn had taught her to expect some fairly brutal treatment. And I I kind of thought, wow, that's shifted yet again. Like that made me feel really old because uh like when I was growing up, like women just didn't often watch porn. And that has definitely changed. Like by the time I was teaching in university, like, I don't know, eight years ago, a survey was published that said that at least one in three women were regularly watching porn. And that that really took me by surprise. Like I'd, I'd actually, I specialised in porn research when I was at university doing sociology. So interesting. That was like my, um, I wrote my dissertation on it and that was like my major interest. I was like, that relationship between women and porn had like completely passed me by it had changed so very much but then yet here was Billie Eilish talking about like how she was beginning to look out for the other side of that and think how she'd been trained into expecting this certain you know genre of male behavior towards her and that that, that maybe wasn't an absolute truth and I thought wow there are huge societal shifts around sex and predation happening all the time and we we have so little understanding of it and we still don't understand what our yeah what our yes means well and that idea that the way that we're living and thinking is based on these stories and codes that we've often unconsciously inherited right and like the idea i think about this with like falling in love we sort of we do these scripts when we're young where right like here's me performing Mm. what i should do when i've gone on I'm going steady with someone. I can picture being 16, but also understanding that when I'm afraid, um, we're also enacting scripts or this idea, you know, in sex, we're we're like enacting stories. And if we're not sort of like interrogating those stories and thinking like, what have I inherited here? What do I want to keep? What do I want to give away? Then we are, you know, we're think we're mistaking sort of free will for actually like being traded and given something, often by a system that's exploitative capitalist, rate, you yeah. know, patriarchal, racist. And like, we have to do that work of sort of excavation, interrogation, I think. Mm. And it's hard. Mm. It's hard and it's, but it's completely vital and inescapable, I think. Like we, I don't think we can get anywhere without thinking about this, this Jungian archetype, really. Yeah, exactly. Just this idea, I said, when I said the title of the book to my sister, she said, I think of like a big sloppy kiss like a wolfish kiss and like this idea that a woman would be wolfish, like a woman's not really wolfish. And I was just really thinking about that as like an idea of like, I'm someone who's like deeply hungry and deeply sort of um, omnivorous. And I saw that in how I researched this book, but how I sort of moved through the world and like, what does it mean to sort of reclaim that idea of a word that's like too much? There's something sloppy about it, perhaps in a certain stereotype Mm, um, of the masculine. You're not allowed to be too hungry. You're not, right. Exactly. I was just going to draw another parallel, really, or or ask you what you thought about it 
because in the UK this week, we've had, a, or last week, we had a lot in the, the newspapers about these bully XL dogs, which are uh, a breed of dog that seems to have been bred to emphasize their kind of like physical power and heft. And this is under debate, but perhaps aggression, although a lot of people would say that it, it depends on how the dog is, is raised and trained and treated. What does it say about us that we are breeding scariness? Let's, let's use the word scariness to like encapsulate all of that. Into dogs and inviting that into our home. Or not all of us, clearly, but, but some. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say that it, it makes me, the first thing I think of is the sort of um, video camera surveillance state that's become so normalized here where every porch you're really told like someone will steal your packages. So you've got to put up this camera yeah. and this a mistrust of neighbors, right? I, I, they're strangers. They're not neighbors, right? And I think yeah. there is a degree of like, you need to protect yourself. I, I just thought so much about the ways that I was told to protect myself and distrusted those just because I think something scary doesn't mean it's a threat, you know, and this is true for a man on the sidewalk, like the gap between perceiving something as predator and actually them being predator. And so, you know, a dog like that, it seems like it's that's such a deep story about the stories we're telling about each other and the fact that we're in a world where people think they're under siege from each other mm. instead mm. of seeing our commonalities or interconnectivities are right. So you need a dog that's a weapon that, that kind of aggrandizes you. Yeah. Yeah. So just to close, I, I had a question sent in from Jojo who asked what you were writing next. The traditional question that we all want to know. Um, <laughs> tell us, tell us, where'd you go after wolves? Well, I'm writing about love, not fear now. Um, and I think in some ways the question of like, I was writing this book to try to deal with how to live with my fears. And now I'm far less hypervigilant and I'm much more comfortable living beside it. And, you know, I don't think a book always solves your problems, but there is a degree of <laughs> puzzling it over enough. And so the question I was then left with was like, the world is still scary. It's going to be scary. The future scares me. And yet it's not a reason not to connect and love each other. And I've been thinking about sort of the way love in the face of uncertainty looks different and climate change in particular and how animals are changing what they're doing and adapting and they're mating and mm -hmm. they're in relation to each other in different ways, I will say, whether it's um, marmots are suddenly, there's more infidelity among the marmots. Like, what does that say about how they're, we're marmots, learning to no. take care? I know, I know. <laughs> they're so cute. How can they be mean to each other? <laughs> Maybe it's not a bad thing. I don't, you know, we got to get inside the marmot heads, but... So I'm being very judgmental of the marmots. I'm so sorry, no, But this is the thing that I, I relate really hugely. <laughs> Certain birds being too tired to do their mating rituals because it's so hot. And so there are these, I'm looking at this animal world and thinking also about the sort of questions and stories that I've inherited about love and what it means to be in relation as we're moving into a period of deeper, perhaps, unrest and uncertainty. But I think it's so important to be thinking about these sort of love stories and connections because that's a way of visualizing um, an excitement in the future that's always been um, mm -hmm. there for me. And I'm thinking about, like, I do feel like things are quite dire environmentally, um, but I also feel like this really strong sense of, like, hope and sort of, like, ongoingness that I, I'm trying to kindle. So looking into that. <laughs> That sounds absolutely amazing. And please send me an early copy. <laughs> I'm getting in the queue Fingers early. crossed it becomes anything and not my serial killer scribbles on a giant piece of paper, you know, on my wall. <laughs> Erica, I would read those. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's just been amazing to talk to you. And I hope everybody reads this incredible book. I, I just loved it. So congratulations. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you all for being here. It's always so, so great to see you. But for now, a very good night and, uh, and thank you again. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Well, welcome back. Wasn't that just great? I absolutely love running this non-fiction-focused book club, which is quite a rare thing. So many book clubs are really about fiction books. But I just adore getting the chance to meet the authors behind my favourite new books and to really being able to have a conversation with them about what makes them tick, how they think, and finding those interesting corners where our work relates. 
It's fun out there, isn't it? Get to do lots of things. I find that a problem, frankly. (laughs) There are too many good things to do and I have to learn to cut down a bit. As you can hear, I'm a little bit hoarse after a week of talking to interesting people on various podcasts. (sighs) It's one of the big challenges of this world is knowing how much to do, knowing when to stop, knowing when to take a break. But we're just moving towards winter now, towards the dark half of the year. And that is, as you know, my favourite time of the year. And I love that it invites us towards a slowing down of pace and a reframing of who we are as people during that time when everything feels that little bit quieter, that little bit more peaceful, that little bit more domestic. (sighs) Anyway, I hope you enjoy this new season. If you'd like more information on Erica's book, do check out my Substack, which is katherinemay.substack.com. And I'll see you very soon. Bye. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here to explore how we live now. This podcast is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. Buddy Peace also composed the wonderful incidental music. For updates, show notes, transcriptions and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at katherinemay.substack.com where you can also upgrade to support the show and join my vibrant community of readers, writers and wanderers. And finally, if you enjoyed my podcast, please consider buying my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. See you next time.